Today's scripture is Luke 9, 1 through 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of the old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but what is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of the Lord. Check, check, check. Hey, it's worth it. Good morning, family of God. Our text of scripture today from Luke chapter 9 is a turning point in the gospel of Luke. It's also a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has been walking around from town to town, from village to village, and he has been preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he has been healing sick people. And he has been casting out demons. And he's had a group of disciples who go with him. They're watching his actions. They're seeing his miracles. They're listening to his words and learning about the kingdom of God. But up until this point, though they may have had some minor roles in participating in the ministry of Jesus, their primary role has been watch Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Jesus has been doing all the preaching and teaching and healing. But now there's a turning point. This is the beginning of something new where he's going to send them to do the work that he's been doing. And this is important because it alerts us to the fact that King Jesus has come to save the world. He's come to heal the world. And he's going to bring that healing to the world through his disciples. He's going to, he's starting a movement. And that movement of salvation, that movement of healing, isn't just Jesus walking around doing special things. It's Jesus calling people to follow him and then transforming their lives and then doing things through them. So this is about the kingdom movement. Everybody say movement. And that movement that we're reading about in Luke chapter 9 is still going on today. After the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, he sat down on a throne on the right hand of his father and he poured out the Holy Spirit. And he continued proclaiming his kingdom and bringing healing to the world 
through his people, we are a part of that story. And we got to recognize there's a lot of spiritual conflict going on in the world. There's a lot of discouraging things happening in the world. Amen, church. But even in the midst of all this discouragement, Jesus is still on the move. His movement is alive and well. And the fact that we live in a place where um, there is right now uh, an increasing amount of distrust towards Christianity might warp our view of what's happening in the world because the historical fact is that there are more Christians in the world today than there have ever been in the history of the world. And a greater percentage of people on the planet name the name of Jesus than ever have in the history of the world. The movement of Jesus is alive and strong because the gospel has been exploding with power from the Holy Spirit all over Africa and Asia and South America in remarkable ways. The movement of Jesus is strong. But this moment right here that we read about in Luke 9 is a turning point. Jesus is going to work through people. It's a turning point. In the ministry of Jesus, it's a turning point in the gospel of Luke. And I pray that today it will be a turning point in our lives. As we come to think more deeply and more clearly about our role as disciples of Jesus, whom he has called not just to love Jesus, but to participate in the movement of his kingdom. Amen, church? So I want to invite you to bow your heads for a moment before we dig into the passage. We're going to just walk through this. Line by line, and, and it's, the passage has a lot to teach us, a lot of wisdom about what does it mean to be a part of this movement of Jesus. But first, I want to pray because we need the Holy Spirit's help. So, would you bow your heads with me? And I just want to invite you where you are. I pray that God would give you an attentive mind and an open heart to hear His word today. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. We continue to thank you for all the blessings that you have given us, that Pastor Jared was talking to us about a moment ago. We ask that you would forgive our sins, and Lord, would you revive our hearts and instruct our minds right now. We need your help. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to speak your words with your power and with anointing from your Spirit. And would you give us all minds to understand, minds that are engaged, hearts that are soft and open. And would the Holy Spirit light a fire in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's, let's walk through this little by little. The first words of our text, Luke chapter 9, verse 1 says, And he called the twelve together. You might want to underline that word twelve. Everybody say the twelve. Who are these twelve? Now, if you've been... Following through the gospel of Luke with us over the last few months, you'll remember Jesus has a lot more than 12 disciples. He has dozens and dozens of disciples. In fact, pretty soon he's going to send out a group of 70 of his followers to be ambassadors of his kingdom. But right now it's talking about the 12. And if you want to remember who they were, you can flip in your Bible back to chapter six. If you've got your Bible, flip to chapter six, verse 12. If you don't have your Bible, you can just listen. But the 12 here is an inner circle within the larger group of Jesus' disciples whom he has named apostles. Everybody say apostles. 
And we read about that in Luke chapter 6, verse 12 said, In these days, he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then Luke went on and listed the names of these individuals. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus, a learner of Jesus, a student of Jesus. All of the disciples are following him around, watching his actions, listening to his words, learning from him, beginning to imitate him. And now he's chosen an inner circle of 12 called apostles. And apostles means sent out ones. So to talk about apostles is talk about being sent. Everybody say sent. And as a matter of fact, what we're reading about in Luke chapter 9 is all about these apostles being sent by Jesus as his ambassadors who are extending his influence, extending his mission. But what I want you to notice right now is the delay between Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9. He called from among his disciples, 12, he named them apostles, which means sent ones, in Luke chapter 6. But then he doesn't begin sending them until Luke chapter 9. And in those three chapters, a lot of stuff has happened. Jesus has healed a lot of sick people. Jesus has taught a lot about the nature of the kingdom of God. He's taught parables. He's spoken beatitudes, blessings and woes. He's raised the dead on two separate occasions. And all the while, the disciples have been with him. And these twelve whom he named apostles have been with him. And there's a principle there. He called them and gave them the identity apostles sent out ones. They have a mission from God. But before he sends them, he has to prepare them to be sent. And being with Jesus comes before being sent by Jesus. To say this another way, doing for Jesus must grow out of being with Jesus. When we're called to follow Jesus Christ, that's a call to relationship. Everybody say, with Jesus. The disciples were with Jesus. It's a call to relationship. And as they're walking with him, he is showing them his heart. He's showing him them who his father is. He's showing them who they are. He's explaining the nature of God's kingdom to them. He's transforming them little by little. And as that is happening, their hearts are changing and their hearts are growing till they get ready to be sent. Now, there's several implications here for us today. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. In a little while, we're going to talk about what does this have to do with us? In what ways is this text a model for us as the church of Jesus Christ today? But... I'll get ahead of myself now to say this. Some of you in this room are passionate about being used by Jesus to change the world. And that's awesome. I'm excited about that. Praise God for that. And I just want to encourage you that for the, your whole life, fruitful ministry, fruitful witness for Jesus, if it's going to be healthy, always grows out of intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy with Jesus is the starting place. And when we get really... Busy pouring out in a way that neglects the internal work of fellowship with Jesus. We can really get ourselves into trouble where we're overextended and we start serving. The problem is not actually that we're serving too much. None of us here serves as much as Jesus did. His days were full. The problem is not that we're serving too much, but we can start serving in our own strength. And if we start serving in our own strength, we lose power. 
Because the power doesn't come, as we're about to see, it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. So for those of you who are already passionate around Jesus, I want you to understand you need to prioritize being with Jesus. Everybody say, with Jesus. But there's others in here that we can be honest. You're not passionate about mission. And we don't have to pretend that we all have it all together all the time. And anybody want to confess that some days you wake up in the morning and you're not excited about sacrificing to change the world for Jesus? Okay, a few hands went up. Quick. Okay, if that's you, there's no judgment here. This is a place of grace. But I want to suggest here, here's the solution. Here's what the solution isn't. The solution isn't you're serving too much. I just want to name that because, I mean, you might be serving too much. I don't know if that's true or not. But I know a lot of people who have felt like, I don't really have a heart for ministry anymore. I'm serving too much. So they pull out. And the time they used to spend serving, now they spend working, watching Netflix. Let me ask you a question. Has watching Netflix ever rekindled your passion for mission? Right. The, the issue is not that we're too zealous for the mission of God. I've never met anybody who's too zealous for the mission of God. I think it's actually impossible. But here's what I would say. When we recognize that our zeal for the mission of Jesus has waned, the solution is we need to come back to prioritizing being with Jesus. Everybody that I know who has finished their life zealously serving people and making disciples and sharing the gospel and caring for the poor and working as an ambassador for the kingdom of God is a person who has gone through ups and downs. Sometimes they were excited about Jesus, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were energized, sometimes they were bored. Sometimes they were walking in holiness, sometimes they were struggling in sin. Sometimes they felt close to Christ, sometimes they felt far from Him. But by the grace of God, they prioritized over the long haul of their life relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus continued to rekindle a zeal for fulfilling the mission of God. So in Luke chapter 6, Jesus called 12 to him and named them apostles. Says, I'm going to change the world through you. And it says, follow me. Now for three chapters, they've been following him. And and Luke chapter 9, you can go back to chapter 9. Look at verse 1 again. Says, he called the 12 together. And then the next phrase says, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. But I just want to pause for a second. He gave them power and authority. Now, those have been important words in Luke's gospel. Everybody say power and everybody say authority. Those words have been used a lot. Luke has drawn our attention to the word power and the word authority. And let's take a pop quiz, see how well we've been listening. So far in Luke's gospel, it's been very clear. Who does the power and authority belong to? Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And pretty soon, these apostles are going to start doing some amazing things. I mean, as you read through the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, God's going to do some amazing things through these men. They are going to heal the sick. They're going to raise the dead. They're going to... Speak words of truth that are ignited with fire from the Holy Spirit such that thousands of people are going to be converted. They'll they'll make many more disciples than Jesus did. God's going to do amazing things through these men, but it's important to recognize these are just ordinary men. 
They don't have power and authority in themselves. They're prone to sin and temptation just like us. And as a matter of fact, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that God intentionally tends to choose people like these guys who are not even very impressive by worldly standards. In the book of Acts, when they start speaking with powerful wisdom, their enemies are going to think, these guys are unschooled, ordinary men, and they're going to take note, these guys have been with Jesus. They're not super impressive individuals. They're ordinary people. They're people like us. But here they're receiving power and authority, and it's a gift of grace. They they didn't deserve it. Just read through the Gospels. It's not like they fasted and prayed and went without sin for 12 years, and then Jesus gave them some authority. They're sinning a lot. Throughout this narrative, the power and authority that's given to them is a gift of grace that they did not earn and could not deserve. And yet it's also a stewardship. It belongs to Jesus. He's entrusting it to them and he wants them to be faithful with it, to use it according to his purposes. But the key point here is all the power and authority comes from Jesus And all the power and authority points back to Jesus. All the glory goes to him. Let's say it one more time. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And we got to ask the question then, what are they doing with this power and authority from Jesus? The answer is they're preaching and they're healing. That's what they're doing. As we read through the Gospels, Jesus advances his kingdom through preaching and teaching on one hand, through healing. In other words... Jesus speaks words of truth, and Jesus does deeds of love. Speech and action go together. That's true in the personal ministry of Jesus, and that's true in the ministry of his apostles, and that's true in the early church as we continue reading the New Testament. Words and deeds go together. So everybody say preach. Everybody say heal. Look at... Verse 1, again, and into verse 2, it says, He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Then, if you skip down to verse 6, summarizing their mission, it says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they're extending the ministry of Jesus. It's a little bit different from them, though. When Jesus preaches the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, what he's saying is, I'm the king, I've come. And as his ambassadors, as his apostles, what they're saying is, Jesus is the king, look at him. He's the savior. When Jesus does miracles, when he casts out demons, when he heals six people, he is showing them his authority. When they do it, they're saying, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Because they're trying to point back. It's all about Jesus. But the words and the deeds go together. The words explain the meaning of the deeds. The deeds demonstrate the reality of the words. This is not idle talk. The message that Jesus is king is backed up by the power and authority demonstrated through the actions of his disciples. And so, in a moment, we'll reflect on the fact that today, as disciples of Jesus and ambassadors of the kingdom of God, words and deeds go together, bearing witness to Jesus the King. Now, in the remainder of these verses, I think Luke is, in a variety of ways, trying to highlight two very important principles that shaped this first mission of the apostles, which are still relevant for us today. Our mission, obviously, is not identical to their mission. 
This was a specific historical moment. But there are some principles that shape their mission, which are still relevant for us today. Two very important principles. The first one is this. Jesus instructs the apostles to embrace a lifestyle of radical dependence. Radical dependence. Dependent faith. Dependent trust in the Father. Everybody say dependence. Look at verses 3 and 4. That's where we see this. And he said to them, take nothing. That's already a strange instruction, isn't it? Usually, if you're going to send people on an important mission, you say, prepare. We're about to go to Falls Creek, and we send everybody a packing list. Bring this stuff. Bring all this stuff. Don't forget your socks. Definitely don't forget your deodorant. Bring it all. Prepare. When soldiers go to war, they usually are carrying a lot of equipment. But Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, take nothing. Take nothing for your journey. And then he elaborates, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. So he's not saying, first do the fundraising part of your mission, and then go do the other part of your mission. He's actually saying, don't take any money, don't take any food. And as I was thinking through these lists, I thought maybe the most radical thing there is no bag. Don't take a bag. See, at this time, there were Greek philosophers who were teaching what they claimed to be wisdom. And they would often travel around, mendicant preachers like this, they would travel around, but they would carry a bag. And if you saw a guy wearing that bag, you knew this was one of these traveling philosophers. And that meant that if you wanted to learn wisdom from them, you could honor this philosopher, honor this teacher, and give them some money or some food that they could carry with them. But Jesus is distinguishing his disciples even from that. He says, don't even take the bag. Don't even take the bag. What does that mean on a practical level? It means if you're in one village and you're proclaiming the gospel and you're healing the sick and the people are responding with faith and it's very exciting, but you know it's time to go to the next village and they say, we love Jesus. We, we believe he's the king. We love what you're doing. We want to send you gifts, give you some food and money to take with you to the next village. You can't take it unless you can carry it in your hands. So if they want to give you enough food and money to last you a couple weeks, you can't do it. Jesus is saying, I don't want you when you go to village C to be relying on the provisions you got from village B. He's calling them to a dependence, which is much more radical than that. When you get to village C, you got to depend on the people in village C. And in a second, he's going to make it clear that some of those villages are going to reject you. These instructions may seem strange to us, but Jesus is teaching his disciples. They must learn to have a radical trust, to depend on God and to depend on the hospitality and generosity of those who receive them. Radical dependence, this kind of radical dependence demonstrates trust in God. Nobody going around preaching the kingdom of God would follow these instructions unless they actually believed God was going to take care of them, right? This is authenticating their mission in the same ways that their healing ministry and their casting out of demons is authenticating their mission. This also establishes relationships of mutual trust 
generosity and hospitality among the community of believers. As they are giving spiritual things to the people they're ministering to, these apostles are dependent to receive from God their physical provisions, but to receive from God through the people to whom they're ministering. So it's not just that they give, they give and receive. It's mutual inter- interdependence. Everybody say dependence again. Dependence. As we read through the New Testament, we'll see repeatedly in- emphasized in the early church a strong emphasis about we need to be a people of faith who radically depend upon God's provision. Jesus didn't say, give us today our, day- our monthly bread, did he? Give us today our annual budget. He said, give us today our daily bread. There's an emphasis upon radical daily dependence on the Father and interdependence within the body of Christ. There's a strong emphasis on receiving the hospitality of the church and giving hospitality to others, receiving generosity and giving generosity, bearing one another's burdens. And so fulfilling the law of Christ, as Galatians 6, 2 puts it. Now, I do not think that this means for us that it is sinful that we have a stewardship committee. Our church does have a stewardship committee. Austin Domasek is the chair of that committee. Domasek, I always want to make it a long O. Sorry, Domasek family. Uh, and several Isaacs on the committee. A bunch of you guys are on the committee. It's not sinful to have a budget. It's not sinful to make a plan. As a matter of fact, as we read through the New Testament, we'll see the Apostle Paul in passages like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 um, being very careful and prudent and intentional about financial planning and fundraising for the sake of the kingdom of God. But what the church is never supposed to lose that's here in this text is a sense of radical trust and dependence. And if you have that radical trust and dependence, you will take risks for the glory of God. You'll take risks to serve your neighbors and you'll be free from fear. Once we stop sacrificing and taking risks to serve our community, this often begins to show we're not trusting in God, we're trusting in our plan. We're trusting what's in the bank. And Jesus is teaching them radical dependence. Some of you guys may know John Stott. Uh, John Stott was a great um, pastor, preacher, teacher, author at All Souls Church in London for many years. And um, towards the end of his life, he wrote a little book called Radical Discipleship, Some Neglected Aspects of Our Calling. And as he talked about some, some aspects of Christian discipleship that we neglect today, one of the things that he emphasized was this word dependence. And he described that throughout his life, he had always prided himself on being independent. But this book, which he wrote a few months before dying, he said, as I'm aging, there's a whole lot of things that I used to be able to do for myself that I can't anymore. I need other people to help me tie my shoes. He says, over the last few years, aging and my body breaking down, depending on others, has been a huge blow to my pride, and I've experienced the nearness of God in a way that I wish I would have throughout the rest of my life. He's saying we need to learn how to be dependent, and some of us may need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us right now, because some of us in this room have no problem giving to others, but we have a very difficult time receiving from others. Some of you may feel really honored when somebody asks for your help, but you won't ask for help. And, and according to Scripture, that's actually a problem. And probably the problem is pride. What Jesus is calling us to is radical interdependence. 
where we're offering help and we're receiving help, all the while trusting in him. The next principle that Jesus teaches, the second, final principle for these apostles, is that he instructs them to be faithful in the midst of opposition and conflict. Everybody say opposition. Here's the thing. To join the movement of Jesus is to very clearly and publicly identify ourselves in the midst, with a particular side, in the midst of an ongoing spiritual war. That's the reality of the universe. Now, if that scares you, here's the main thing I want you to hear. Actually, that war is going on all the time, whether we publicly and clearly identify or not. The devil doesn't leave you alone just because you're lukewarm, okay? Sometimes I hear Christians say things like, if the devil's coming at you, it may be because you're being faithful for the kingdom of God. Now he's got his target on you. There's probably a little bit of truth in that, but sometimes I think for the faint heart of that makes them think, well, then I better stay just like a little bit committed to Jesus because I'm not trying to get all that attention. And here's the thing. If you're not on fire for Jesus, the devil's already got you where he wants you. That's the problem. So the war is raging all the time anyway. If we're not prioritizing intimacy with Jesus and actively pushing back against the darkness, then that means we're probably tacitly working with the darkness. So Jesus is calling us today, like Joshua called the people, choose you this day whom you will serve. Pick a side. Pick a side. And he's calling us to be a disciple of Jesus. Doesn't just mean I've prayed a prayer so I can go to heaven one day. It means I'm trusting in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And he calls us to follow him. And as we're following him, he's going somewhere. And where he's going is pressing out to places of spiritual darkness and brokenness in the world with a powerful gospel that dethrones evil spiritual powers. He's calling us to join that movement. I can't be a disciple of Jesus without joining that movement. But he wants them to be prepared for the reality that there's going to be opposition. And we actually see it three times in this passage. First one we've already seen in verse 1 is demons. But I'll just say, here's the three, three kinds of conflict and opposition he's preparing them for. One, they're going to have to deal with demons. Two, they're going to have to deal with rejection by people. And three, they're going to have to deal with persecution from the world's powers. Demons, rejection by people, and persecution from the world's powers. Let me show you each of those in the text. In verse 1, we already read, he gave them power and authority over all demons. I just don't want to miss the fact. What does that mean? It means there's evil spirits at work in the world. And wherever they go proclaiming the name of Jesus, the demons are being exposed and brought to the surface. And the disciples are going to have to deal with that. That's what that means. But next, I want you to look at verse 5. This is about rejection by people. It says, and wherever they do not receive you. When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, let's take another pop quiz. I'm going to make a confession here. When people reject me for any reason, any way, it hurts my feelings. All right, here's a pop quiz. When people reject you, do your feelings get hurt? I don't like to be rejected. But Jesus tells his apostles... Some people are going to reject you. Some people reject me. They're going to reject you. And he says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. What does that mean? Well, 
At this time, there was a custom that many Jews would follow that if they went into Gentile territory, their business or whatever took them to a Gentile town. As they left that town, as they walked out the boundaries, they would shake the dust off their feet. And that was a symbol of separation. I came here for business, but I'm not one of you. I'm not a Gentile. I'm not a pagan. I'm not an outsider from the kingdom of God. I'm one of God's special people. And now Jesus is actually flipping this on his head in a very provocative way. The other Gospels make it clear that at this time, Jesus has told his disciples, don't go to any Gentile towns. Go only to the lost children, the lost sheep of Israel. He's only sending them to Jewish towns. But he's saying to them, if they accept your witness to me, then they really are the children of God. The kingdom of God has come here. And one of the things that means is that they're going to be a light to the Gentiles. But if they reject me, when you walk out, you need to show them a sign. If you separate yourself from Jesus, you're separated from God. If you reject Jesus, you're cutting yourself out from God. This is not a mean-spirited thing. It's, it's a warning of judgment that is designed to provoke them to repentance. But don't get it twisted. When we talk about the kingdom of God coming with grace, that does not mean that we don't need to respond with faith and obedience. Jesus comes with grace for sinners, and he calls them to repentance, and he calls them to identify with himself. And the reason that... This, the dust is, not, is being shaken off. Is not that Jesus is vindictive or mean-spirited towards people that won't believe in him. Is that there's nowhere else to go. Jesus is God. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Who has come to heal and forgive and to restore. And if we reject him, there's nowhere else to go. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness are the only two options. And so he tells them, you're going to be rejected. And when you do that, don't get mean-spirited. Don't get hostile. Don't cuss anybody out. Sometimes when we're living on mission, we try to love people and be nice to people. And then they're mean to us. And then we find out how full of the Holy Spirit we really were or weren't. Amen, church? But he tells them, don't retaliate. Don't get mad. Don't cuss them out. Just warn them and keep going. And then finally, we get all this business about Herod. Let's, let's read those verses, 7 through 9. It says, now Herod the Tetrarch. Let me pause for a second. This is not the same Herod about whom we read around the time of Epiphany from Matthew chapter 2, who tried to kill baby Jesus and in the meantime slaughtered innocents. That Herod was an evil, power-hungry man, but he was a good political leader as far as worldly politics go. He built some amazing projects. He was good at political organization, economic organization. He was known as Herod the Great. This is his son. Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, got his father's paranoia and cruelty without his father's brilliance and strength. He is a, a fairly weak figure, and he is very immoral, and he has a bad rep, historically, from everybody. There's nobody that's like, we really love Herod the Tetrarch. So that's the Herod we're talking about here. And, and this text goes on. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. The movement of Jesus is spreading in a way that's getting the attention of this insecure political leader. And if you're in a place that's already a hot, uh, a, a place of... A hotbed of religious fervor that can spill over in riots and revolutions at any moment. And you hear there's a preacher going around doing miracles everywhere. And people are saying maybe he's the king. That's going to get your attention. He heard about what was happening and he was perplexed. 
Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Then, as now, people have a lot of theories about Jesus. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Now, I want you to hold this thought because Luke has not told us yet that John the Baptist is dead. Last we heard from John the Baptist, he was in prison. Herod put him there, but he was still alive. And he was sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one we're waiting for or is there another? John was a great prophet, but he wrestled with doubt and uncertainty like we do. But now we just found out he's dead. Some people are saying John the Baptist came back to life. That's who Jesus is. Some of them are saying one of the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures has returned to the earth. And if you type into Google, who is Jesus today, you'll get a lot of theories. People get PhDs and then write best-selling books. As a matter of fact, if you want to write a best-selling book and you're willing to sell your soul, here's all you got to do. Get a PhD and then write a crazy book marshalling historical arguments for some theory about who Jesus is. There's lots of bestsellers like that. Some of them are written by really smart people. Some, there's some crazy stuff also on TV right after Ancient Aliens, right? Some stuff about who Jesus is and the secret conspiracies he started. Historically, what we know about Jesus is what's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, we have some other confirming data, but the actually historical, reliable details are what's in our Bibles, in the Gospels. But then and now, people had a lot of theories about who Jesus was, and Herod is perplexed. He doesn't know what to make of the stories he's hearing. And he says, John, I beheaded. So that's the moment we find out. The other Gospels give us some details about how John was beheaded. That's a tragic little phrase. But notice that Luke doesn't give attention to the details of the backstory here. He doesn't tell us all about Herodias and Herodias' daughter and all that stuff. Because he's trying to keep us focused on Jesus and on the kingdom of God here. But what we just learned is this guy Herod already killed the relative of Jesus whom Jesus called the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this? I want you to underline those three words, who is this, in your Bible or in your notes. Who is this? A couple of weeks ago, when we heard the story of Jesus calming the sea, after Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to be still, and they were still, his disciples fell on their knees and cried out, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were in awe of Jesus. And now Herod says, who is this? And here in a couple of weeks, we're going to read, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're going to give the same list that Luke just gave us. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the old prophets. Some say you're Elijah. And then he's going to ask them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's going to make the good confession. You're the Christ of God. But over and over, Luke is confronting us with this question, which is the single most important question you have to answer in your life. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And over these last few weeks, I've been encouraging you to think about that question both objectively and subjectively. Who is Jesus objectively? Who is he really? Who is he in fact? Not how do I feel like he is, but who is he? And that's an important distinction to make because here's the reality. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord when I feel like it and when I don't. Amen, church? 
We just need to come back to the importance of, of objective truth, objective reality. If Jesus raised, really rose from the dead, as all the historical evidence indicates, then we'd better take him seriously when he claims to be the Son of God. But then we've got to ask the question, who is he to you? Who is he to you? Is your heart and mind aligned with the reality of who he is? Herod says, John I beheaded, but who is this? And with Herod, it doesn't seem to be because I'm interested in turning my life around and following God. I need to deal with this guy too. That's what he's after. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Again, not because he wants to become his disciple. As a matter of fact, as we keep reading through Luke's gospel, we'll find out that um, Herod has a sort of morbid fascination with religious leaders and he's hoping to see Jesus do a miracle. But when Jesus refuses to perform a miracle in his presence, he's going to mock Jesus, deride Jesus, dress him up like a king with contempt and send him off to Pilate to be executed. So as we read these words, the shadow of the cross is falling over Luke chapter 9. This is a turning point in Luke's gospel, not only because this is the moment where Jesus begins to more fully incorporate his disciples in the ministry that he's doing in the world, but also up until now, Jesus has been growing in popularity. But in chapter 9, Jesus is beginning, going to begin to say, my enemies are going to kill me. I'm going to die and rise again. And if you want to follow me, disciples, you have to expect the same opposition. As Christians, we should pray for our government leaders. Amen, church? Pray for the president. Pray for Congress. Pray for the Supreme Court. Pray for our Oklahoma leadership. If you like them or if you don't like them, pray for them. As Christians, we should be good citizens who try to strengthen our communities. The Bible is very clear about that. As Christians, we should give thanks for what's good in our communities, even as we lament what's broken in our communities. But we also need to be sober-minded about the fact that in the Bible and in history, people in political power very often wield that power in a way that is directly opposed to the purposes of Jesus. People in power very often are threatened by the claims, claims of Jesus. In the Bible and in history, people often claim to be on God's side in order to get religious people on their side so they can manipulate them. We need to be aware of that reality. We need to not be naive. We need to be sober-minded. Thank God for government leaders who are people of genuine faith and goodwill. Maybe some of y'all should do that. Somebody want to be president in a few years? I'm looking... Some of the little ones here. People of God serving in government have the capacity to use that authority for a lot of good. But in the history of the world and in the Bible, very often they do not. Here's the reality, church family. And, and throughout the world today, I said a minute ago, there are more Christians in the world than there ever have been. But also there have been more Christian martyrs of the last 40 years than any period in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, the number of Christians who have been killed for their faith in the last century is greater than the number of Christians who were killed for their faith for the first 19 centuries since Jesus. There's been intense opposition to the gospel. We live in a country where we're blessed to experience religious freedom, 
But as I alluded to earlier, it is true that in our country, Christianity is becoming less popular, more likely to be criticized and treated with contempt. And some of us are pretty weak-kneed because we're so used to everybody patting us on the back and saying we're doing good. So as disciples of Jesus, you should just expect the culture isn't always going to say you're doing a good job. And church, if it gets cooler and cooler to walk away from your faith and criticize all the failings of the church as an excuse for why you're not going to be faithful to Jesus. We just have to decide, are we going to go with that or are we going to stick with Jesus? That's the question we've got to decide. But Jesus warns his disciples, you're going to face opposition from demons. You're going to be rejected by people. You're going to face opposition from political leaders. But I want you to be faithful. I want you to be faithful. And he's going to tell them more about that in a little bit. But I'm almost done for today. I just want to end by asking this question. Okay. This is a beautiful moment, a transition moment in the Gospel of Luke. But how are we supposed to hear this? What does this mean for us as Christians today? Christian theologians, when they're describing the nature of the church, mention several attributes of the church. And one of them is this. The church of Jesus Christ is the apostolic church. Okay? So I'm going to give you a big theology word to take home with you so you can feel like you really came to church today. Okay? You can talk about it over the dinner table. I'm so glad that we learned about being the apostolic church. Everybody say apostolic. We are the apostolic church. What does that mean? It means two things. And I want to reflect on these very briefly before we end. It means two things. First, we acknowledge the unique role of that first generation of apostles of Jesus who are eyewitnesses to his resurrection. These 12 minus Judas plus Matthias and Paul and maybe some other people. We acknowledge their unique role. We listen to their witness. I'll say more about that in a minute. And second, we recognize that as the church of Jesus, we're also the apostolic church in the sense that we also are sent by Jesus as ambassadors of his kingdom. Now, let's reflect on each of those for a moment. We need to recognize and acknowledge the unique authority given to that first generation of apostles who are reading about here. He gave them power and authority. Listen to how he describes this in John chapter 13, verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, whoever receives the apostles of Jesus receives Jesus and God the Father. And the opposite is also true. If you reject the apostles of Jesus, you're rejecting Jesus, and thus you're rejecting God the Father. Church, this is why we take the New Testament so seriously. The apostolic doctrine in our Bibles. And by the way, the reason we take the Old Testament so seriously is because of what Jesus said about the authority of the law and prophets. What we're doing here is rooted in the teaching of Jesus... And of the prophets who prepared the way for Jesus and of the apostles whom he commissioned with his authority to go be ambassadors whom he has called us to receive, which means we're not at liberty to make it up as we go along. Can I make a confession to you? Y'all might judge me for the first part of this confession. Here's my confession. If it was up to me, there's some stuff in the Bible I would change. Say, you're judging me, aren't you? If it was up to me, there's some stuff in the Bible that I would change. But here's the thing. It's not up to me. And not only is it not up to me, but 
though there's some stuff I don't understand and there's some stuff that sometimes rubs me in a way that makes me want to study a little more and get out some more commentaries and figure out what is going on here. I'm willing to say very clearly, God is all wise and I am not. Amen, church family? And I'm willing to recognize I'm a product of my cultural moment. So there's stuff in the Bible that 400 years ago everybody liked. That today offends us. And there's stuff in the Bible that 400 years ago offended everybody that we get excited about today. But is God changing with the culture? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And Jesus, if we love Jesus, Jesus who loved us enough to die for us, he sends his apostles with his power and authority. Says if you receive them, you receive me. Which means when we get to the parts of the New Testament that we don't like, sometimes y'all come and ask me about it. And I'm trying to explain why what God said is Good, and there's a little voice in my head that's saying, yeah, but you would change that part, though, if you could, right? But what I'm responsible to do, certainly as a pastor, but more importantly as a Christian, is recognize that if there's parts of me that disagree with the Bible, that means there's parts of me that are wrong, that need to be adjusted to line up with the apostolic doctrine of the church. So when we're here, what we're going to try, we're going to fall short for sure, but what we're going to try to do is always be faithful to the doctrine of the prophets and the apostles. But finally, we're not only the apostolic church in the sense that we acknowledge the authority of these first apostles, but also that we are the sent church, continuing and extending their apostolic mission, preaching the gospel of King Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And this is a ministry of word and deed. We've got to go around telling everybody, Jesus is the king. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again victoriously from the grave. Anybody who believes in Jesus will be forgiven and adopted into the family of God and receive eternal life. Jesus is the king. That's the verbal proclamation. And as we go making verbal proclamations of this gospel, the same spirit who empowers us to preach also empowers us to love. To do deeds, which is why wherever the gospel has spread, Christians have, we were talking about this with our youth a minute ago, Christians have started stuff like schools and hospitals. Do you know Christians basically invented the hospital? Go Google, did Basil of Caesarea invent the hospital and read the articles that come up. And what you're going to find is these early, there were doctors already who would take rich people's money in order to treat them. Most of the stuff they were doing was actually wrong. But when the Christian movement started spreading, some of these Monk said, we need to study how the body works so that we can treat people with better medicine. And we need to start houses of hospitality so that poor people can come receive the same care. And that's why when you drive around Oklahoma City, it's like Mercy Hospital, Baptist Hospital, Methodist Hospital, um, St. Anthony Hospital. Wherever the gospel goes, Christians um, are caring for the poor. They're educating people who the surrounding culture didn't educate. They're giving food to the hungry. They're rescuing children who have been abandoned throughout history. This is the reality of the church. And church, that's who we want to be today. We want to tell our community that Jesus loves them, but we want to show our community that Jesus loves them through our deeds. Amen, church? As we do this, we got to go in radical dependence, faith, and humility. When we, some of us, planted Christ Community Church, which is one of the two churches that merged to become Redemption Church... Uh, when we planted that church about 13 years ago, 14, I've lost track, 13, 13 years ago, I remember our first meeting. We had eight people. We were meeting in Chauncey's living room. That was the only property that we owned collectively as a church, was Chauncey's house. Mostly Chauncey owned that house. Some would say exclusively. But we were, we were in Chauncey's living room. There was eight of us. We had two people on staff. We had no money to pay either of them. I was one of those two. 
And、uh, I remember us sitting around saying, "We've got nothing but a prayer, a burden for this community, and Jesus, and that's going to be enough." And it was awesome. And 13 years later, it has actually turns out it's very helpful to have like a van to pick up some kids in the gym, right? Those things are helpful. Some snacks are helpful. It's helpful. We couldn't fit all of you in Chauncey's living room, so thank God for these provisions. But the danger is we start depending on them instead of Jesus. And I just like to make this deal. Can I make a deal with you, church? Let's make this deal. Until we die, let's keep taking risks for Jesus. Let's keep serving our community, even if it doesn't quite make sense. Sorry, stewardship committee, y'all gonna have to deal with this. <laughs> But let's keep let's keep being generous beyond what looks like it's gonna make sense. Let's keep pouring ourselves out in radical dependence on God and on our community. We're going not as the people who have it all figured out, but as the people who are ready to give and receive because. Jesus is the only one who can heal us. And finally, let's expect opposition. But I want to end today by reading you a couple of verses because Jesus gave the apostles unique authority, but He also gave authority to you. And I want you to re- listen to what Ephesians two says about you as a Christian.、It、says God made us alive together with Christ. This is Ephesians two five and six. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, but in an invisible spiritual realm that you can't see and we can't fully understand, you've already sat on a throne with Jesus. That's what Paul just said in Ephesians two six, which means you have authority over demons. It means that as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You have been sent with authority over all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It means that when you proclaim the word of God, even if you face opposition from rich people and powerful people and governments, you're speaking in the name and the authority of somebody who's way richer than them and way more powerful. You're speaking in the authority of King Jesus, which is why I love James four seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's the thing: if we're not submitted to Jesus, we have no power. But if we're submitted to Jesus and trusting Him, all power and authority has been ours. So that when we go out in word and deed,、uh, we may suffer, we may struggle, we may die for our faith, but we can know King Jesus is going to win. I invite you to stand with me, and I want to say a prayer for you before we respond to the Word of God in song. As our worship team comes up, why don't you just take a second, ask the Holy Spirit what He wants to say to you through this text of Scripture? Our Father in heaven, I pray for those who are in this room and those who are in the chapel. Those who are watching online, those who are listening to a podcast, in the name of Jesus, let these words go into our hearts. I pray that the center of our lives would be life with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, relationship with Jesus. And as we do life with Jesus, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would rekindle in us again and again zeal to participate in Your mission. That you would make us a holy, empowered, joyful people, eager to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, eager to make disciples, eager to do good works, zealous for good works, and that as your 
extending your kingdom all over the world. We don't want to miss out, Lord. We pray that here in this place where you have planted us, we would be faithful witnesses. And that many who do not know you would come to know you in our community. And that many would experience your healing power bringing blessing to their lives through your people and give you the glory. Lord, all around us in this city where there's people who are living in bondage to darkness and spiritual forces of evil, we pray that you would set them free and that you would use us to bring freedom and salvation, to bring truth where there are lies, to bring hope where there's despair. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.